special episode of the Brothers Book Club podcast. If you're listening to this episode, you have stumbled upon, perhaps intentionally, perhaps not, one of our best of or highlights episodes. This is something that we did for the first 20 episodes of the podcast, specifically the review set we are doing of the Penguin Little Black Classics Collection. That is a collection of 80 books of world literature in small volumes. Ryan and I, that's my brother, We've been recording reviews of these and recommendations of these, and we did highlights for episodes 1 through 20. Um, The purpose of that was pretty simple, to give people a preview of the tone of the show and the content, and just to pluck out moments that we thought were especially noteworthy, funny, interesting, maybe even insightful, if we can, you know, brag a little bit. We do have some insights on the pod, I like to think. And so that's kind of what the highlights are intended to do. This will also be a highlights or best of episode, and it's going to be for episodes 21 through 40, so basically the next 20 reviews in that collection. Before we get into the best of episode, though, just a bit of background on those. Ryan had a baby, and it's been such a beautiful addition to our extended family, and he and his wife have been enjoying her presence. She's uh, such a fun uh, ray of sunlight in all of our lives. But what that has entailed for the podcast is that I did the last 20 episodes solo. Uh, Occasionally I had friends drop in and help me out and do some follow-ups, but for the most part, episodes 21 through 40 were just me, and that's Travis, doing solo and kind of experimental podcasts. I change up the format in each show, and I tried different ways of review and different ways to sort of look through and analyze the books in the collection. What that resulted in, though, is just a bunch of me talking. And what I didn't want to do was for the 21 through 40 highlights, go back and listen to myself for 20 episodes and pluck out clips of just me solo talking. I thought that would make for a very dull revisit. And so I've completely redesigned what this best of or highlights episode is going to be for the 21 through 40 set. Specifically then, what will be the format? I will tell you. I have decided to revisit all 20 of the books. No, I did not reread them all. I did revisit some of my dog-eared pages and annotations, and I re-listened to a couple of spots, but no, I did not fully go back through and reread all 20. That would be, in my mind, just madness. So I kind of glanced back over them, looked at the scores, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a two-minute recommendation for each of them in this episode. So if you've listened to none of those, which is fine, you can really listen to them at any time in any order. They kind of stand alone. But what you can do is use this episode as sort of a guideline. If any of the next 20 recommendations I give you in brief intrigue you, then you can go revisit that episode and maybe find something to read or find something intriguing to think about. The format is going to be the same for all 20 of these. I'm going to begin each one after a little music plays. I'm going to read a quote from that one, a quote that I hope represents the work, the tone, the content, the author's style, all that stuff. And then I'm going to, after that, jump into a very brief, again, under two-minute recommendation or outline of what we read and what we thought of it, or I guess what I read and what I thought of it. And that is going to be for each one. So, that, And that's going to be continuous. There won't be any breaks in this episode. There won't be any pauses or interjections. It's going to jump from review to review. 
each time I'll say the title of what we read and what it was, and again, I'll try and give, I think my goal here is to do only positive recommendations. If you've ever listened to an actual episode of the show, you know that we sometimes recommend that you avoid reading something, which is, I think, the whole point, right? To recommend uh, and review and kind of push you toward or away from something. This is all going to be positive for the most part. I'm going to try and make a case for each of these. And so it's generally going to skew in the more recommendation-heavy direction, I think, even if on the actual pod I didn't like something. You'll know that a new episode or a new review, mini-review, is coming up because I will play the following audio before each one. And that, I think, is a full preview of the review or best of highlight show that you've got coming up for you. Again, I plan on keeping each one under two minutes. I'm going to be pretty strict on that. I do want these to be little snippets and snapshots that you can use to then go back and listen to other episodes. I want to do, before we begin the show, an enormous thank you to anyone who's been listening, um, checking in and out. Again, it's not a podcast by design that you have to be listening to week to week, though, you know, we hope you like us enough to join in. You can obviously just drop out and, and pick an episode up at random. Each one stands alone. The reviews stand alone. If you see an author's name or a title or just anything that intrigues you, a time period maybe. Feel free to drop in and out. We love that. Um, Continue to recommend us. You can follow us on Instagram at The Stumped. That is the name of our website as well, though I bet if you find the Brothers Book Club podcast anywhere, it's probably not on our website. It's probably through Spotify or the Google Store or the Apple Store. We are hosted on all those formats and all those places. Please rate and review our podcast if you can. We would love and appreciate that. Again, that's the Brothers Book Club podcast, and we are The Stumped, and let's start the show. Excuse me, dear people. My inside has not been answering the call for several days now. The doctors are puzzled, but some pomegranate rind and resin and vinegar has done me good, but I hope now it will be back on its good behavior. Otherwise, my stomach rumbles like a bull. So if any of you wants to go out, there's no need for him to be embarrassed. None of us was born solid. I think there's nothing as or so tormenting as holding yourself in. This is the one thing even God Almighty can't object to. Yes, laugh, Fortunata, but you generally keep me up all night with this sort of thing. That is a quote from Trimalchio's Feast, a sort of satirical, I don't think it was written as a play, it's definitely prose here, but of a sort of satirical Roman dinner party. This is going to be the first one that I'm mini-reviewing again. It's as fitting quote as any to start the recommendations. Um, It's an appeal by kind of this charmingly maniacal Roman landowner to relieve yourself and take a shit as you please, and to not bottle yourself up, relieve your bowels uh, freely live free, etc., etc. Um, that's not really a philosophy of the pod, though. Sure, why not? I, I can't help but disagree, or I can't help but agree with that. I think your tolerance and patience for sort of wealthy grandstanding will go a long way if you want to listen to and read this one. There is a certain, again, as I already said, like egomania to the main character, Trimalchio, in this one. I think that's kind of the point. It's almost like a skewering of the upper and wealthy classes of the Roman Empire. If that sort of social insight and commentary, especially of an um, of antiquity, of a, of a civilization pretty pretty long gone in the past, interests you at all, then this is a pretty nice slice of that, and it does have comedic moments, hopefully like the one I just read. 
I think that Dinner Party is a kind of a smart setup, and it is filled with a lot of humorous absurdities, things that will make you wonder, wow, they really, you know, partied that way. Um, at least the decadence of it, the, the as I mentioned, absurdities of some of it definitely jump out. There's all manners of animals that are made out of pork. There's recreations of things. There's uh, dramatic recreations and reenactments of scenes from history. There's uh, copious amounts of wine drinking, and then there's, you know, challenges, threats of duels. It's really out of hand. It's a total raunchy and yet kind of polite train wreck in a way. They're still observing these social conditions and these social niceties, and it's definitely got a runaway host in Trimalchio. So if you're looking for that kind of debauchery, this one I don't think will let you down. Eventually, the rogue had nothing left but the pistol. But seeing that the gentleman still had a couple of lovely doubloons in his green silk purse, he said, Sir, won't you buy this pistol of mine with what's left in your purse? It's made by the best gunmaker in London, and it's worth two doubloons of anyone's money. The gentleman was surprised. This robber's an idiot, he thought, and bought the pistol. When he had bought it from the robber, he turned the tables on him and said, Hands up, my fine friend, and do as I tell you. Keep walking in front of me or I'll blow your brains out. But the rogue darted off into the wood. Go ahead and shoot your excellency, he said. It's not loaded. The gentleman pulled the trigger, and in fact, it didn't go off. If I had to recommend anything about the collection called How to How a Ghastly Story Was Brought to Light by a Common or Butcher's Dog, which is what I just read from. It's by Johann Peter Hebel, or Hebel. It's probably diversity. These kind of miniature short stories, these little fables, offer a lot of diversity, and there's just many different plot lines and thematic threads, though I say, and I think I said this in the pod, there's a lot of commonality throughout them too. Many of the stories are under two pages long, which I think, you know, for a current reader could be a huge recommendation point. You can read through 10, 20 of them in a pretty short reading session. I think, though, that does come in exchange for a bit of complexity and depth. If you want some kind of, like, psychological insight into humanity, deep character study, I don't think you'll find those here, but that's kind of fitting for the genre anyway. If you're reading a collection of fables, you sort of know what you're getting into. I think these also do retain that old fable sense of brutality, almost there's some of them that are kind of, like, hyper-violent. Um, as I mentioned, there, there's a diversity to them, but I think thematically a lot of them do come down to something like, be careful who you trust, and duplicitous people are everywhere, is the quote I just showed, a kind of, is a variation of that theme. If you don't mind relooping on that idea, though, I think, again, you may have fun with these. It's, they're definitely going to be too violent for young readers, though, so don't share them with your nieces, nephews, or children, I don't think, sorry about that. Stick with Disney, that seems much safer, sanitized. But if you're curious about older fables from a different culture, I think these are Dutch, or they're maybe, they're from Europe somewhere. Oh, they're German. There we go, they're German. Um, I think you might find some things to enjoy in them. Then Karen was horrified and tried to take off the red shoes, but they wouldn't come off. She tore off her stockings, but the shoes had grown onto her feet. Dance she did, and dance she must, over the field and meadow, in rain and in sunshine, night and day, but nighttime was the most terrible of all. She danced into the open churchyard, but the dead weren't dancing. They had better things to do than dance. In a sense, the thing I just read, which is a quote from the collection The Tinderbox, is kind of the perfect follow-up to the Butcher's Dog collection that I mentioned before this one, as you're getting a lot of the same sort of fairy tale fable flavor, 
with just a hint more depth and, and seasoning to add kind of a metaphor into this. Um, I think it's just a, a better cooked or prepared collection of that. Um, it's kind of, to put it another way, I guess, the same cuisine, but with a lot more expertise behind it. You know, it's not your your boring neighborhood Thai food. It's like the expertise, you know, street cart level amazing Thai food you get right at the, you know, right at the shop. It's that sort of difference. There are characters here that are actually characters, fully drawn out and with a lot of depth. They're not just like archetypes or caricatures or quick sketches. Um, you definitely feel a little bit more attachment to them. Uh, then again, they're still fables and fairy tales of a sort. I think one of the highlights of this collection was the Tin Soldier, which has a bit more... It's got a bit of Toy Story in it. You can see how those stories maybe influenced one another, or, or rather how the Tin Soldier influenced Toy Story. Um, unlike those films, though, these are, again, kind of the authentic fairy tale aspect where they're kind of devastating at the end. They're never a happy ending. They're kind of grim and, again, oddly violent in spots. I guess they just don't write them like they used to. Um, and again, this collection was The Tinderbox by Hans Christian Andersen. <laughs> I didn't stick to that work for long. The black smoke does not allow of much other business, and even though I am very little affected by it as men go, I couldn't do a day's work now to save my life. After all, 60 rupees is what I want. When old Feng Xing was alive, he used to draw the money for me, give me about half of it to live on, I eat very little, and the rest he kept himself. I was free of the gate at any time of the day and night, and could smoke and sleep there when I liked, so I didn't care. I know the old man made a good thing of it, but that's no matter. Nothing matters much to me, and besides, the money always came fresh and fresh each month. That quote is a great summary of Rudyard Kipling's Imperial India in this collection called The Gate of the Hundred Sorrows. It's kind of hazy, it's kind of mournful, and it's got this touch of dread that undergirds the whole thing. It's definitely sorrowful in a lot of spots. The narrators all seem to have this contentment to be detached in their situation. They're sort of these attempting to be objective observers in a foreign land that a lot of them detest or don't understand. They feel kind of indifferent about it or stuck there. You know, they're Englishmen in India that in, some of them just don't know what they're doing there. They're middle administrative types that are just caught in a career type um, position. And I think that kind of serves to push the reader, in a sense, to other characters in the stories, which, to Kipling's credit, he does flesh them out with other intriguing people, and even the narrators themselves have a, have a bit of depth, and there's some, I'm not going to say sympathy for an imperialist, but there is some idea of feeling yourself caught in a, in a position or path you didn't necessarily predict, and you just ended up there. Um, I think the English main characters here are far from the most sympathetic, like I said, or dynamic, but I don't know, maybe that's the point. I don't think I want to give Rudyard Kipling too much credit on that front. I don't think he's as intrigued by the, the people who lived and were native to India as he is in the English condition there, but you do find that complexity in those portrayals and sort of the societal clash in these short stories. I think it's kind of imperialism in miniature in a way. Um, it doesn't reflect too much on the pain and death it leaves in its wake. I think for that, obviously, you got to get beyond Kipling anyway and get to some uh, native writers and, and other writers. But in terms of an introduction, I think this Kipling collection does hold up for a, a couple of reasons. And again, that was The Gate of the Hundred Sorrows. <laughs> I am in circle three, and rain falls there, endlessly, chill, accursed, and heavy, its rate and composition never knew. Snow, massive hailstones, black, tainted water pour down in sheets through tenebrae of air. 
The earth absorbs it all and stinks revoltingly. Cerberus, weird and monstrously cruel, barks from his triple throats and cur-like yowls over the heads of those who lie there drowned. His eyes vermilion, beard a greasy black, his belly broad, his fingers all sharp-nailed, he mauls and skins, then hacks in four these souls. From all of them, rain rings a wet dog howl. They squirm as flank screens flank. They twist, they turn, and then, these vile profanities, they turn again. That reptile Cerberus now glimpsed us there. He stretched his jaws, he showed us all his fangs. And me, no member in my frame, stayed still. Here we have a quote, and you can tell immediately by its tone and content, from Circles of Hell, which is a, a short snippet of The Inferno, which is by Dante. It's a really quite legendary poem at this point in the English canon. I think if the horror of that image at all intrigues you, then please, you should just stop what you're doing and go read The Inferno. This was a strong recommendation at the time, and I still feel very strongly about it. Don't wait a minute longer to indulge in this grim fantasy of epic proportions, if, again, that quote at all drew you in. Um, I think it could be maybe my own proclivities uh, for maybe metal music or certain types of art or something that pushed me back to love the Inferno so much. I don't know. I'm not going to psychoanalyze myself on this one. Um, I don't know. I just don't... I find how could you not be enticed by that kind of author? He pushes things so relentlessly at you, the imagery, the intensity, the references. It's like... It's just got layers and complexity that I admire. Um, I think it would be maybe absurdly hyperbolic for me to say there isn't a misplaced word in it, because there's just so many words throughout the entire, especially if you read the whole epic poem. Yet I really am tempted, because that's how it felt rereading it. You're just in such control under such a masterwork. I feel like it's it's very clear. I think it's got such an impressive breadth of horrific imagination, and it just leaves you wondering and thinking about these things. I think given the freedom to imagine hell, Dante really did craft kind of a literary heaven. Again, it's dense with illusions, it's playful with language, it's packed with memorable images, it's uh, really incredible. Like, I'd nearly forgotten how much I admired it and loved it when I read it in college, so this was one, The Inferno or Circles of Hell, that I was so thankful to get back to. Then the sights, as you elbow your way through the crowd, are equally multifarious. Here's a stall glittering with new tin saucepans. There another, bright with its blue and yellow crockery, and sparkling with white glass. Now you come to a row of old shoes arranged along the pavement. Now to a stand of gaudy tea trays. Then to a shop with red handkerchiefs and blue checked shirts, fluttering backwards and forwards, and a counter built up outside on the curb, beside which are boys beseeching custom. At the door of a tea shop with its hundred white globes of light stands a man delivering bills, thanking the public for past favors and defying competition. Here alongside the road are some half-dozen headless tailor's dummies, dressed in Chesterfields and fustian jackets, each labeled, Look at the prices or Observe the Quality. Such indeed is the riot, the struggle, and the scramble for a living, that the confusion and uproar of the new cut on a Saturday night have a bewildering and saddening effect upon the thoughtful mind. If you couldn't tell by a pause, slight pause there, I cut out about another two paragraphs of description to jump to the end. This is from Of Street Pie Men, which is a Victorian-era chronicling by Henry Mayhew. It's a nonfiction work when he would observe the times that he lived in in London. It's meticulously detailed, and it 
it, while it doesn't have, I would say, pointed enthusiasm about it, his observations are so thoughtful and so detailed. It's not entirely objective, of course. He he definitely in- inserts opinion and has thoughts about sort of the morality of the times and cer- how certain jobs are kind of this lead to this destitution. But I wouldn't call him like a, a super harsh critic either. He comes off as, like I had mentioned, meticulously detailed, and hopefully the quote showed that too. I think some of his stories elevate, sometimes literally there's a balloon story in there, but they sort of elevate this variety of human experiences. There's a a story about this downtrodden guy who's kind of a bird catcher who's out of luck for the time. There's a story about these um, teenage flower girls who have this kind of beat in this sales routine that they go on. He follows them and talks about their lives. I think they're also orphans, so... You know, not not a lot of pleasantness there, unfortunately. But he is definitely not pitying them. I think I don't, I'm not sure if I recall at this point if he fully admires them either. He kind of comes off as this attempt to be neutral, but it's again meticulously detailed, really I think well written in, in spots and moments, and um, just really kind of absorbs you or, or immerses you rather into the the life and times of that London era. <laughs> Good news. The days of grief and pain won't stay like this. As others went, these won't remain or stay like this. Though my beloved thinks of me as dirt and dust, my rival status and her trust won't stay like this. And though the doorman wields his sword against us all, no rank remains immutable or stays like this. When good or bad come, why give thanks and why complain, since what is written won't remain or stay like this? In words of gold they've written on the emerald sky, only compassion does not die, but stays like this. Do not despair of love, Hafez, it can't be true. The heartlessness she's shown to you will stay like this. To be fair, a a good retitling of this whole collection by Hafez, who is a legendary poet, I think, a Persian poet, um, this collection is called The Nightingales Are Drunk, I think a good retitling of it would be Hafez is Drunk. A lot of his poems talk about his love of wine and his enjoyment in revelry and celebrating. Uh, I don't think he's exactly an inspirational drunk. I think that the twist at the end of that poem I just read to you shows that a bit. I don't think he's abusive or sinister either. He's definitely not grim, not a grim writer. I think he, he does bemoan lost love a lot, which, you know, as far as poetry goes, that is the rich field in which poetry is often sown. Um, but he also simultaneously celebrates pleasures. There are simple ones and complex ones in this poetry collection of the human experience. Again, he celebrates his friendships, his getting together with people, drinking and celebrating is a big uh, part of his enjoyment, I think, in life, or it was. I could do without... He has this odd uh, repetition of this self-congratulatory sign-off at the end of his poems, um, where he often speaks about himself in the third person. Now, that could be a deeply stylistic thing of the time period or of the poetic genre he's writing in or something. I don't think I researched that on the review. Um, and so there were some kind of stylistic oddities, but overall I found it pretty enjoyable. Um, don't mistake his contentments for aloofness. He, I don't think he's above it all. I think he there is kind of yearning and sorrow here in these poems. Um, I don't think it, it is expressly that, but yeah, I think it, it does have that depth and complexity to it. <laughs> Christ, whenever it comes back to me, when I recall my youth and jollity, it fairly warms the cockles of my heart. This very day I feel a pleasure start. Yes, I can feel it tickling at the root. Lord, how it does me good. I've had my fruit. I've had my world and time. I've had my fling. But age that comes to poison everything has taken all my beauty and my pith. 
Well, let it go. The devil go therewith. The flower is gone, there is no more to say, and I must sell the bran as I may. But still, I mean to find my way to fun. Now let me tell you of my last but one. There's no more complete character in the entire collection so far, and we're through about 47 episodes now, than the wife of Bath, the, the rambunctious Simply enjoyable, irreverent Wife of Bath. This is the collection by Geoffrey Chaucer, and The Wife of Bath is just an excerpt rather, from his Canterbury Tales. The narrative format of this, it's, it's extended direct storytelling. It's basically first person, although she's technically telling it to an audience, but it's extremely direct. I think it certainly lends to the complexity and depth of her character we see. The dynamism of her is such an admirable way of writing a character. She, she gets moments of just where you're just shocked by her, again, like irreverence and sort of, she almost has a couple of lines that feel kind of brutal about abuse and assault, and it, it seems really harsh. And then all of a sudden she's insightful and wise, kind of self-deprecating in a way that's very relatable, and just finds herself, and hopefully the quote should this, being very realistic and straightforward. I think she's deeply flawed, she's complicit in some issues that, that seem, especially if you read it in 2020, to be uh, extremely complex, and, and would I think a, a current reader would have some strong maybe revulsion to moments in this. But I, The Wife of Bath is just as human as it gets, and it, and is humorous too in a lot of spots. I think you don't even really need a strong plot when the character is this enthralling and, and this thrilling to read and the lines keep you so engaged. Uh, even then, you kind of do get an interesting plot in The Wife of Bath story. It, it has a moderately entertaining little kind of fable or fairy tale at the end that has some, again, humor to it. Um, can't recommend this excerpt from Chaucer strongly enough. I don't even remember the rest of the Canterbury Tales, but this is something I'll be going back to in the future. I thought it was a really delightful read. To conclude... Does not the following reveal a most explicit granting of her favor, as well as her goodness and singular piety? The two Ignatii, the father and son, having been prescribed by the Roman triumvirate, nobly decided that their duty was to take each other's life and so frustrate the cruelty of those tyrants. Sword in hand they fell on each other. Fortune guided their sword points, made both blows equally mortal, and honored the beauty of such a loving affection by giving them just enough strength to withdraw their forearms from the wounds, blood-stained, and still grasping their weapons, and to clasp each other. There as they lay, in such an embrace that the executioners cut off both of their heads at once, allowing their bodies to remain nobly entwined together, wound against wound, lovingly soaking up each other's lifeblood. Yikes, I'd, reading that out loud is really something else. I hadn't really given that much thought. Um, wow, okay, that was intense to read. I'm just going to try and recoup here and get to the summary. I, I don't know if there's a better encapsulation of opposites than that quote. It's both beautiful and horrifying, as I just relearned by actually saying it out loud instead of just kind of glancing it over. This is a from an essay collection called How We Weep and Laugh at the Same Thing by a French essayist, uh, Michel de Montaigne, I think it is. Um, butchered the pronunciation again. Way to go, me. Um, and many of the essays are, are kind of that way. They have these contradictions, these paradoxes of human life in them. I think a lot of these essays just set out to explore those things. The topics are pretty heady, as that one was both heady and gruesome, too. Um, you know, questions like, why should we save our life at all? Can we use or trust conscience at all? Do we, how do we even acquire a conscience? And so these are philosophical in nature. There's also the titular question, how can we both weep and laugh at the same subject at the same time? Why are things that are often horrible 
also humorous to us. I think the writing style is quite anecdotal, and it kind of fits right into 2020 internet writing, where you're kind of bouncing between, it's got this blog style about it almost, you're almost bouncing between, like, a reference to this and, and almost a study here, though when it was written there weren't many formal academic studies, but it does feel that way in terms of the, the prose. And I think in the end then, maybe it provides better questions than answers. Some of the answers feel maybe a little too casual or tossed off, but there's a lot of entertainment here, uh, thoughtful writing, and, and really thought provocation, I thought, as well. And so you, you could do a lot worse than these essays, how we weep and laugh at the same thing. Senor Satan, when he was a young stripling and had not yet gotten perfect audacity to set upon us in the daytime, was a sly politician in dreams. But those days are gone with him, and now that he is thoroughly steeled in his scutchery, he plays an above board he plays above board boldly, and sweeps more stakes than he ever did before. Now I have writ a false gallop these three or four pages. Now I care not if I breathe me and walk soberly and demurely half a dozen turns like a grave citizen going about to take the air. To make a shaft or a bolt in this drumbling subject of dreams, for once I have been tossed off and on I know not how, this is my definitive verdict, that one may as well by the smoke that comes out of a kitchen guess what meat is there a broach, as by paraphrasing on smoky dreams, preeminent or future events." Best thing we can say about this Thomas Nash quote from The Terrors of the Night is that he admits his faults. It's very, very humble. There's some humility in this. Uh, You will find yourself lost in this labyrinthian text, just like he was lost writing it, it seems. I think he gets further in that regard than most writers. You know, comes across as at least acknowledging maybe his own writing faults. This is the most dense text, I think, of the entire collection so far. It's explicitly a challenge. It is a map with no compass, puzzle, or direction. It's a crossword with no clues, just a bunch of blank boxes, no answer key. It really was baffling to read this. And in that sense, you can kind of draw an analysis or or find an angle that you, as you desire to, which I think appeals to some readers. I found it kind of maddening to read, but intriguing in some ways. There are different ruminations in here that are interesting. It's largely about dreams, as hopefully that quote shows. He, it's kind of a just a philosophical and thoughtful wandering about thinking about dreams. But he also talks about the humors, like the old medical kinds of humors. There are thoughts about demons and monsters of the night, as the title implies, too. Didn't find it frightening to read, though. The only explicit fear in, in me when I read this was there was a glossary of old translated, like, old English terms in the front that you're going to have to consult to read this. Hopefully you find, like, an annotated or, or noted copy. I don't think you should be totally afraid, though, um, of, of going into the Nash. Just know what you're getting into, and, um, and maybe enjoy. You might come out the other side a more enlightened person or a more confused one. I guess that's how labyrinths, that's just how they go. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at the length a simple ray of dim light, like the thread of the spider, shot from out of the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. 
It's okay if when you're listening to that quote, you don't catch the Macbeth illusion sitting there right right for your plucking, right for the taking, because there's a lot more to enjoy in Edgar Allan Poe, I think, than just literary stuff, literary details. There's just macabre images, there's creepy details, there's these oddball narrators that are unre- clearly, who are clearly unreliable. And the mood and tone in this collection by Edgar Allan Poe, that was from the Telltale Heart, is, is just so thick, it's dripping with mood and tone, it practically drips off the page. I think one trait that these little black classics have made me appreciate more than anything else is cohesion. And it's clear that some of these collections, authors coalesce everything into a kind of singular purpose or focus, and then there are some that are just kind of feel rambling or unfocused. And this is this is the former for sure. Poe accomplishes this three times over in these short stories. I've never been one to be, you know, actually frightened or afraid while reading. I reserve that uh, terror for movies and, t- I guess, scary TV shows. So this, these didn't have that effect on me. But if you go to read Poe, you'll get into something grim, thought-provoking, and that has a macabre flair, but also is quite literary and, and intense and intriguing, I think, psychologically. So really recommend reading Edgar Allan Poe in whatever format you can find him. Getting over these falls was perilous, not to say scratchy work. One or another member of our party always went through, and precious uncomfortable going it was, I found, when I tried it in one above a gaja, ten or twelve feet of crashing, creaking timber, and then flump onto a lot of rotten, wet debris, with more snakes and centipedes among it than you had any immediate use for, even though you were a collector. But there you had to stay, while Wiki, who was a most critical connoisseur, selected from the surrounding forest a bush rope that he regarded as the correct remedy for the case, and then up you were hauled, through the sticks, you had turned the wrong way on your down journey. That quote is just on the cusp of being sardonic in my mind. I think it's just the right touch of kind of dry British wit and sarcasm. This is a collection by Mary Kingsley called The Hippo Banquet. It is from her journals and chronicles of traveling in West Africa. She was a a woman adventurer, which at the time was incredibly rare. And so her, I think, diaries and journals were lauded and respected, not only just for her observational detail, which I think is quite intense and and pretty impressive, um, but also I think she was just a a model of that at the time. The titular Hippo Banquet, for example, has this menacing kind of tone and aura to it, but she also minds humor humor out of that situation too. I think you'll find that her travels are equally kind of lively and frolicking and frolicsome as they are menacing and dangerous, maybe more to the former than the latter, I think. I do wish her observations kind of focus more on the peoples she observes and interacts with. She does comment on them. It's incredibly colonialist, pretty much strongly implicitly racist as well. There's definitely views about, you know, barbarism and kind of lesser peoples and stuff. It's not explicit, though, so if those themes or ideas do kind of put you off and you find you can't read that kind of stuff, maybe avoid this one. But if you can get over that kind of dated colonialist aspect and language, which, again, isn't dominant in the text, but it is present, I think you'll find a narrator here that kind of she does zig and zag rhetorically and in her observations, almost like the you know the rivers that she traverses. I think it did make for, as far as the natural world goes, a pretty engaging observation. Sir, I may perhaps be expected to appear pleased and grateful for the offer you have made me, but let me tell you that I consider it as an affront. I look upon myself to be, sir, a perfect beauty, 
where would you see a finer figure or a more charming face? Then, sir, imagine my manners and address, and I imagine them to be of the most polished kind. There's a certain elegance, a peculiar sweetness in them that I never saw equaled and cannot describe. Partiality aside, I'm certainly more accomplished in every language, every science, every art, and every thing than any other person in Europe. My temper is even, my virtues innumerable, and myself unparalleled. Since such, sir, is my character, what do you mean by wishing me to marry your daughter? Let me give you a short sketch of yourself and of her. I look upon you, sir, to be a very good sort of man in the main. A drunkard old dog, to be sure, but that's nothing to me. Your daughter, sir, is neither sufficiently beautiful, sufficiently amiable, sufficiently witty, nor sufficiently rich for me. I expect nothing more in my wife than my wife will find in me. Perfection. And that ludicrous self-indulgence there, that, that kind of titanic narcissism, is just the kind of thing that Jane Austen would come to skewer in her later writings. That is a quote by Jane Austen from The Beautiful Cassandra, which is a collection of her juvenilia. So it's actually a collection of work she wrote before she was a published author. It was intended to entertain her family, I think, like extended family or something. And as far as a predictor of her later works, both thematically, rhetorically... It's pretty rich, actually. These early writings are kind of an eerily accurate representation of her style and focus. There's really sharp criticisms of different social dynamics, uh, particularly those within a family. Those abound. There are also these, uh, again, like Herculean self-centered characters like the one I just read. There's a countess in here, too, who has this barrage of criticisms at these younger people. There are also, like, naive characters who are maybe too idealistic and get kind of skewered for that. I think this um, collection, The Beautiful Cassandra, is kind of a perfect amuse-bouche for Jane Austen. If you've never read her or wondering what she is like or what her writing is actually like, they they keep some of the rough edges in these, and it's not perfect, but I think there's a lot of intriguing stuff, and it's as good a setup for her later work in novels, really, as any. Um, and so the you'll find a lot of social commentary and critique in here. Ivan Ivanich paced the room excitedly, repeating, If only I were young again. Suddenly, he went up to Alyoshkin and squeezed one hand, then the other. Pavel Konstantinovich, he pleaded, don't go to sleep or be lulled into complacency. While you're still young, strong, and healthy, never stop doing good. Happiness doesn't exist. We don't need any such thing. If life has any meaning or purpose, you won't find it in happiness, but in something more rational, in something greater, doing good. Ivan Ivanich said all of this with a pitiful, imploring smile, as though pleading with himself. While there's no guns or reference to guns in that quote by Anton Chekhov, there are plenty of other kind of Russian elements to enjoy and savor. These are well-contained moral tales here. This is a collection by Chekhov called Gooseberries. And if you don't know the gun reference I'm making, a Chekhov's gun is kind of a famous literary device. Check out the actual longer review if you want me to get into a lot of detail about that. The Penguin Collection has been a good refresher on Russian literature and these short stories too kind of fall into the mold that I'm remembering back to when I, I read more of that stuff in school. There's definitely the potential here for extreme heavy-handedness, and there's also cultural subtleties, I think, with Russian literature that can kind of go over your head if you're not quite attuned to it or ready for it. Um, I think also that the moralizing can be pretty intense in these kinds of short stories, especially by Russian authors in the 1800s and 1700s. I don't think these stories suffer that much from those, though. 
characters in them kind of run the gamut in terms of status and ambition, motivations and desires. So you definitely taste a lot of different aspects of this society and life. And that's perhaps probably the best compliment I can give it. These felt varied in a way that other short story collections haven't, even within the Penguin Black Classics set. If you come in for the slices of Russian life, but you stay for the miserable settings and bouts of bouts of nihilism and kind of moralizing and stuff, I think you'll probably enjoy, as long as you know what you're getting into. I think it's only fitting. You can't really travel to Russia without a bite of the cold atmosphere there, and these tales kind of bear that out in Gooseberries. We send our mandates for the certain death of thousands and ten thousands, boys and girls and women that would groan to see a child pull off an insect's leg, all read of war, the best amusement for our morning meal. The poor wretch who has learnt his only prayers from curses, who knows scarcely words enough to ask a blessing from his heavenly father, becomes a fluent phraseman, absolute and technical in victories and defeats. And all our dainty terms for fratricide, terms which we trundle smoothly over our tongues like mere abstractions, empty sounds to which we join no feeling and attach no form, as if the soldier died without a wound, as if the fibers of this godlike frame were gored without a pang, as if the wretch who fell in battle, doing bloody deeds, passed off to heaven, translated, and not killed, as though he had no wife to pine for him and no god to judge him. It's really intense reading that out loud. I'm glad I chose a quote that I felt strongly about. It's um, quite intense, I guess, as I just said, to speak that. Um, That is by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's from a collection called, Well, They Are Gone and Here I Must Remain or Here Must I Remain. I think this slots neatly into a category I call the Shakespeare likes. This is a thing I've observed with high school level readers where they start to think of anything that's old and difficult as just Shakespeare. Like I could easily read this out loud and I bet somebody would be like, is that Shakespeare you're, you're firing off there? It is definitely in that sense poetry with a capital P, incredibly literary. It feels like at times a sprint to the top of rhetorical mountain in a way where it's like how many devices can he cram in here? So you'll find allusions aplenty and there, there's random capitalization of words and kinds of stylistic things that maybe have fallen by the wayside a bit. But if you want anything analytical or you like investigating those things and rereading things, doing that kind of mental work, you could do a lot worse than this. And I think I enjoyed a lot of the poems quite a bit, actually. But you'll have to have not only patience for extended metaphor and allegory, but like pleasure in it, too. I think if you're even on the borderline here, I'm not sure if this is a collection for you. These romantic poems might be too intense. I personally found the thrill of the chase in that sense, like the most motivational when these poems hit that kind of two to three page sweet spot where there's just enough complexity to draw you in and then it doesn't linger too long. It's not a 20 page epic where you're just trying to chase down meaning after meaning that that can become exhausting. So I think a few poems in here did that. The one I actually read from is a little bit longer, but that section I thought was just incredibly striking and and just, just depressing, disturbing. Um, that's the kind of poetry that awaits you in this Coleridge collection, if you're interested. You really only know when you know little. Doubt grows with knowledge. It's really a person's mistakes that make him endearing. A good man is always a beginner. There are people who love and seek out those like themselves. And then again, there are those who love and pursue their opposites. You may have noticed I was pausing between those sayings, and there's a reason for this. 
These are from um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Sketchy, Doubtful, Incomplete Jottings, which is a collection of incredibly brief writings, maxims or idioms, whatever you want to call them. And I think of all the Twitter comparisons I've drawn on the pod, this is the most apt. I mean, these are literally tweet-length thoughts for the most part from a kind of philosopher-slash-writer. And so I think the comparison is probably more apt in this case. If you have listened to previous episodes, you might know we did a Nietzsche pod in the first 20. And his also felt that way, but compared to these, they seem far more fleshed out now. There are lots of quotes in here about self-improvement. There are these little bits of wisdom or, or thoughts about that particular topic. So if that's your type of reading, you might be extremely satisfied here and you might find a lot to chew on. I think to its benefit, though, there are other topics here. There's art criticism. There's philosophy about life and t- how to spend your time. There's views of how humanity looks at history and uses or discards it. And so I think, you know, again, like I've said about a lot of these, there is a variety to this that I think you might find intriguing. You just have to know, though, that you're not getting quote-unquote deep thoughts, you are getting brief, very brief um, snippets and samplings of a, of a person's kind of wisdom or advice. Consider this, you know, it's kind of like discovering a cuisine for the first time. Amanda and I, who's a friend of the pod, we did a follow-up on one of his novels, which was, I think, more illuminating for me, just because it wasn't so scattered and brief. But if this is kind of like your first time, it might be a great way into reading some of Van Gogh's, some of his work. <laughs> The deck was scrubbed, and the seats were scrubbed, and there was a bench for the band, and a place for dancing, and a pile of camp stools, and an awning. And then Mr. Percy Noakes bustled down below, and there were the pastry cook's men, and the steward's wife laying out the dinner on the two tables the whole length of the cabin. And then Mr. Percy Noakes took off his coat and rushed backwards and forwards, doing nothing, but quite convinced he was assisting everybody. And the steward's wife laughed till she cried, and Mr. Percy Noakes panted with the violence of his exertions. And then the bell at the London Bridge Wharf rang, and a Margrave boat was just starting, and a Gravesend boat was just starting. And people shouted, and porters ran down the steps with luggage that would crush any men but porters. And the whole scene was one of the most delightful bustle and confusion that can be imagined. This, I think, is another story sampling that, like the Jane Austen, is about as effective a primer as you can get, and this is for Charles Dickens. This is from The Great Wingleberry Duel, which is the collection of two short stories that we reviewed. I think in that sense, it it probably is the best comparison to hers. And more than any positive aspect about Dickens, I can say that he has his wit and humor going here, and he does in this collection to, you know, more or less degrees at, at different times. His writing is deeply involved with the societal times that he wrote about, which I think was a Victorian era London. Um... If that time period or era doesn't interest you in any way, I think these stories will still go a little bit, but probably not too far. Um, Topically, we've got misplaced codes of honor from different male characters. We've got like this Noakes guy, these misguided middle managers, just kind of these bumbling fools that we're meant to laugh at. There's family feuds that are so deep you can't even trace the roots. The participants are just blindly fighting. They don't even know why. So I think reading these will have some clarity to the expression of comedy of manners. There's definitely people trying to be uptight and and appeal to high society, but being really fools and, and making a joke of it. If you are somehow listening to this and completely unfamiliar with the history of Britain or England or just any of the, I don't know, literally anything about the societal history there, the customs, the the way that things developed, the 
aristocratic nature of things, the king and queen, all that royal line, all that stuff. This might be a decent way in, though it might also be a little bit baffling too. So I think, you know, for advanced readers only, so to speak, on this one. And that's again the Charles Dickens. With a rusty dagger fragment in one hand and a bit of a wine jar in another, I sat me down on the ruinous green sofa I have spoken of and bethought me long and deeply of these same buccaneers. Could it be possible that they robbed and murdered one day, reveled the next, and rested themselves by turning meditative philosophers, rural poets, and seat builders on the third? Not very improbable, after all, for consider the vacillations of a man. Still, strange as it might seem, I must also abide by the more charitable thought, namely that among these adventurers were some gentlemanly, a companionable souls, capable of genuine tranquility and virtue. I think the most telling thing about that quote, other than the couple of intriguing thoughts I get by reading it, but the most telling thing is I completely forgot about it. It's a really thoughtful meditation on mankind with about buccaneers, um, especially among those of us who may be, you know, quote-unquote lost, like a pirate, someone who's gone wayward from society, and I loved rediscovering it. This is from the Herman Melville collection, The Maldive Shark, which was some poetry and nonfiction by Melville. He, of course, is, like, titanically famous for writing Moby Dick, a book that we all say we tried to read and then never finished, but hey, listener, deep respect to you if you did finish it. I am envious, but maybe not, because there's a lot of things to read and not a lot of time to read them. In this collection, there's a lot to get lost in, thematically and stylistically. The reflections here are mostly about nature, and as a historian of sorts, Melville is comes off as deeply opinionated and involved. He's not looking for an objective account here. He especially highlights the horrors of nature that were made apparent to him throughout his travels. I mean, he was a sailor for a long time, so I think he's earned the right to be a bit nightmarish, which is the penguin term that they chose to describe it as. And I think that term is, is certainly apt. Um, I don't think the humans in this collection come off lightly either, though. There's tales of, like, false kings and uprisings, betrayals, you know, mutineers, that kind of stuff. I don't think you have to enjoy seafaring at all to read these and kind of revel in the bleak meditations and observations herein. I just really loved reading these. It put a touch of fear and existential terror back in nature, which... I personally loved and kind of admire that side of things. I don't think we need to be romantics about the natural world at all times, um, as it can be quite brutal and unforgiving. And I think Melville highlights that stuff in a really poetic and really beautiful way. And that, again, was The Maldive Shark. Tonight is the night when, of all the year, this great old forest surrounding the castle is said to be haunted, by the phantom of a little peasant girl who once lived hereabouts. The tradition is that she was devoured by a wolf. In former days I have seen her on this night out of yonder window at the end of the gallery. Will you, ma belle, take Monsieur to see the view outside by the moonlight? You may possibly see the phantom child. And leave me to a little tete-a-tete with your husband? With the gentle movement the lady with the roses complied with the other's request. And we went to a great window, looking down on the forest, in which I had lost my way. You know, for a culture that like ours that has become has become kind of fully wrapped in a metatextual way, we've taken we've made a satire of the satire, we've taken genres and then made a critique of the genres, but then a critique of the critique, and you just get all these inception like layers, especially in things like science fiction and fantasy. 
I think it might be helpful for people, at least like me, who really like those genres, to get more exposure to some early, playful, fantastical writings like these. These are by Elizabeth Gaskell from The Old Nurse's Story. That's the collection. It's two short stories. One is a ghost story, and the other one is a very illusion-packed fantasy tale, which is what I just run, read from. You may have noticed a reference to a wolf. Uh, who could possibly say what that's a, in reference to? It's kind of an obvious one, I guess. I think you'll find these tales told in a much more reserved manner than, again, we're used to in our science fiction and fantasy-type storytelling. I wouldn't call the ghost story frightening, for example, nor would I call the fantasy romp, like, uproarious or anything. I think current authors would do a lot more extreme things with these kinds of stories, but in these you'll find characterization that is pretty careful and thoughtfully plotted, and you'll find some dabblings in social commentary and critique as well, including a few oddities about, like, the French aristocratic class in the fairy tale story. But it doesn't come across as the focus, so if you're looking for really sharp or poignant versions of that, I don't think these are going to do it for you. But if you are a genre fan and you're just looking for fantastical tales, these gothic short stories I think will be illuminating in that historical sense and might give you a kind of just a perspective on how things can be written other than our kind of meta-intensive genre way that we've kind of become accustomed to and, you know, I still love. So there's that. The Englishman marveled even more and started pumping both Lefty and the courier full of wine, and kept on this way for three whole days, and then they said, now that's enough. They symphonied some water out of a bottle with impressed air, and when they were refreshed all over, they started asking Lefty all about where he had studied, what he had studied, and how far he had gone in arithmetic. Lefty answered, our learning is simple, according to the Psalter and the dream book. We don't know no arithmetic at all. The Englishmen looked at each other and said, That's amazing. And Lefty answered, It's all that way, all over in our country. But what sort of book is that in Russia, they asked, that dream book. The book, he said, refers to, to if King David didn't reveal some fortune-telling clearly in the Psalter. Then you can have some extra fortunes out of the dream book. This one, which is The Steel Flea by Nikolai Leskov, is a great example of helpfulness through negativity, uh, which means you often have to know what you dislike to better comprehend what you love. That's how I felt reading this, um, and I, I know I said at the very beginning, this is the final one, number 40, here in the mini reviews and recommendations. I know I said I was going to be positive on these. I'm, I find it difficult on this one. I think knowing your loathing is as great as knowing your loving in, in another sense. The case, I guess, if I had to recommend this would be simple. You enjoy Russian satire, and you have a vested interest in a critique of, like, czars or Russian oligarchy or history or something. Their society, especially the lives of working classes and peasants, is depicted in kind of a moderately sympathetic manner and fashion in here. Though, as the quote shows, some of it is pretty reference-heavy, and, and again, you, there's some historicity to it that I think you have to get behind in order to fully enjoy it and fully kind of and fully grapple with the text. It's a satire that I don't think will rankle you, and which in 2020, I don't know if anybody really wants that. Um, you know, reading satire that is old, that's another thing the Penguin Classics have shown me, is that that stuff gets really lost in translation culturally, societally, so I don't know if it's going to come off as anything but a bit of a tepid satire, The Steel Flea. I did not love reading it, but there are those Russian elements and components, and so if you're interested in that, you could seek this out. And 
that concludes our episodes 21 through 40 best ofs or highlights collection. I do hope you enjoyed the new format, and if nothing else, I really hope that that kind of snippets and those snippets and reviews gave you something to go back and maybe revisit or listen to for the first time. That's really all we want here is for you to find things to read. We love it, and we hope you do too. As always, we appreciate you listening. Rate, review, recommend us. We are the Brothers Book Club Podcast. You can also find our Instagram where we post art and drawings to go along with the pods. That Instagram account is The Stumped. Thanks again so much. We will see you between the classics. Classics.